and um, welcome to the Benocqui Showcase. Uh, my name is Laura Cattell and I'm, I'm pleased to welcome you here to uh, the LSE Space for Thought Festival and our Poet in the City event for this afternoon. And we're delighted to be working with the LSE in this beautiful building and um, we feel it's great that there's so many poetry and spoken word events forming part of this literary festival, or this arts festival rather. Um, today's Ben Ockrey Showcase is one of a series of Poet in the City events this weekend. Um, this evening we have another event at 6pm which is called Poetry and Choices and that features uh, four of the best contemporary British poets, uh, Joe Shapcott, Robert Mahinick, John Mole and Jane Durham. And there's still a few tickets available if you'd like to come to that. Um, just in case some of you don't know, Poet in the City, you can see the little logo just down there, um, is a registered charity uh, which successfully attracts new audiences to poetry. We've been working for a number of years now in the city and around London, making new connections for poetry, raising money um, to support poetry education, in particular the placing of poets in schools. Um, this event and other events this weekend are all part of the New Audiences Initiative. Um, it's a great honour today to be holding a showcase event with the world-famous writer Ben Ockrey. Um, I shall actually leave our host to introduce um, Ben properly, but we are delighted to have you with us today. Um, our host for today's session is the distinguished interviewer, Palash Davi. Um, Palash is a writer, a journalist and a documentary filmmaker. Um, he's written for The Guardian, The New Statesman and The Johannesburg Star, amongst other publications. His work has touched on figures as diverse as Christopher Hitchens, Michael Moore, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jessica Mitford, and currently Barack Obama. He's also, <laughs> he's also um, a vice president of the Guardian Hay on Wye Literary Festival, where he programs, chairs, and speaks every year. So I'm now going to pass you over to Palash Davi. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for a, for, a, for a lovely introduction. It, it, it's, it's a real pleasure to be, to be here at the LSE, which, is, uh, which I'm a sort of quasi-alumnus, and, and also be doing an event for, for, for Poets in the City as, as part of their Poetry and Choices strand and, uh, and contributing as well to their excellent New Audiences uh, initiative. Um, I do encourage you all to check out um, this, this organisation. It's, it's, it really is, it really is wonderful. Um, we are here at a university. Uh, at the LSE, and I'm going to begin by, in fact, before I do that, I'm going to talk about Ben's poetry. Ben is, of course, known primarily as a novelist, and uh, especially the, the Booker Prize-winning uh, Banished Road, which won the Booker in 1991. Um, I wonder how many people have read Famished Road, and how many people would say that they're familiar with Ben's poetry? Uh, um, far fewer, and which is a curious thing because Ben is is um, is, is quite a distinguished poet, and he was he was a poetry editor for West Africa magazine in the 1980s. He's published two collections, an African elegy uh, and, uh, and and an epic poem, Mental Fight, um, from which he will read. And there's also an extraordinary new book coming out next month, which is a which is a hybrid of poetry and prose, of poetry and story called called Tales of Freedom, which you know continues Ben's. Uh, effort to fight against um, the strictures of form and uh, and and vary and, and hybridise uh, both you know, form and cultural uh, influences. So I'll begin since we're at a university by asking Ben about his own university time in Essex. I dug up a I dug up an article, which um, I dug up a, a speech that he gave to graduating students at Essex a few years ago, which um, Ben was, was for some reason very unhappy about, um, where he told the story of his extraordinary experience there, which was cut short cruelly because the Nigerian government would no longer fund his education, but uh, it, um, it left him with, in fact, I'm not even going to read from this, I'm just going to ask you to riff on this, and if you like you can read from that, because it is really <laughs> wonderful. I would encourage you all to look it up on the internet. Um, it is a really great. Uh, it, it's rather, you know, everybody knows the, the, the uh, Baz Luhrmann uh, uh, graduation speech, which is uh, incredibly inspiring, and so is this. Ben. I actually think, I actually think what I'm going to do is, if you don't mind, break the rules. Yeah, we're all about breaking the rules again. <laughs> and leave 
I'd like to read um, some poems because I think before we uh, get to know one another, you need to need to hear my voice, and then afterwards, I need to hear your voice. Um, I'm going to read a couple of poems. I think I'll begin with Mental Fight. Um, for me, poetry is, is, is essentially the beginning. Um, people think of me as a prose writer and as a novelist, but primarily and secretly, um, I'm a poet. Um, poetry is my incantative relationship with, with everything. So it's fitting that I begin with poetry. It's from Mental Fight. Everyone loves a spring cleaning. Let's have a humanity cleaning. Open up history's chamber of horrors and clear out the skeletons behind the mirrors. Put our breeding nightmares to flight Transform our monsters with our light. Clear out the stables in our celebrated fables. A giant cleaning is no mean undertaking. A cleaning of pogroms and fears, of genocide and tears, of torture and slavery, hatred and brutality. Let's turn around and face them. Let's turn around and face them. The bullies that our pasts have become, let's turn around and face them. Let's make this clearing out moment a legendary material atonement. An African elegy. I read this, for many years I've been reading this poem. Um, in Europe, and for the first time the other day I read it in, in Africa, and it suddenly took on a different feeling. So I want to reread it again in Europe and see if it changes again. An African elegy. We are the miracles that God made to taste the bitter fruit of time. We are precious, and one day our suffering will turn into the wonders of the earth. There are things that burn me now, which turn golden when I am happy. Do you see the mystery of our pain? That we bear poverty and are able to sing and dream sweet things? And that we never curse the air when it is warm, or the fruit when it tastes so good? or the lights that bounce so gently on the waters. We bless things even in our pain. We bless them in silence. That is why our music is so sweet. It makes the air remember. There are secret miracles at work that only time will bring forth. I too have heard the dead singing, and they tell me that this life is good. They tell me to live it gently, with fire, and always with hope. There is wonder here, and there is surprise in everything the unseen moves. The ocean is full of songs. The sky is not an enemy. Destiny is our friend. Should I pause there? Pause there? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the effect that Mental Fight has had on people. Tell us, if you would, about a thing called Mental Fight Club um, that was set up a few years ago by someone who'd be particularly inspired and even saved by it. Well, um, in a way, I'm not the right person to be telling about that. Um, she's, like, she's, 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 like. Yes, <laughs> you, you do that. But I'll just say very briefly that Mental Fight was a poem that, um, that I wrote unintentionally um, as a response to the uh, enormous challenge and possibility of, of the millennium. I remember at the time, just before the millennium, there was a great deal of cynicism that the new century would be the same as the old century, um, and that, in fact, nothing would change, 
and it doesn't represent anything. It's just an artificial date in time, and that people shouldn't therefore take it very seriously. I felt very differently. I felt that the new millennium, like all new um, millennia, have, uh, I thought it would have, it could have a tremendous evolutionary uh, potential for, for, for the human race and for all of us. It may be an artificial time, but you see, for 2,000 years uh, plus, we have been marking time. And so the marking of time has become a pattern and a habit and a cyclical thing in the human consciousness. So whether it's artificial or not, like any habit, it starts to develop its own resonance and its own power. And um, that's why I felt that the new century would represent, if we used it and if we woke up to it, a new kind of evolutionary potential. Um, and I feel, to some extent, um, events have proven me both right and um, surprised me. Um, because he's not um, accomplished at blowing his own trumpet, I'm going to mention, um, I, I'm going to tell you the story of the Mental Fight Club. Uh, it's uh, the brainchild of a woman called Sarah Wheeler. She suffered from severe, still does, from severe depersonalization disorder, and she had gone through several months of ill health. Uh, culminating in a very difficult Christmas in 2002. She said, that night I was suddenly catapulted from depression to euphoria, but I had learned that the euphoric, euphoric phases could be dangerous too, and instead of going with it, I picked up a book. It was Ben Ockrey's great meditation on the predicaments that we face as humans, mental fight. He seemed to be saying that if we can face these predicaments, one of them being mental illness, then we can win through. Wheeler held a party to uh, celebrate the end of the depressive phase of her illness. She said, family, friends, people from the group therapy in which I'd been involved, they all came, and six of us recited the first section of Ben Ockley's poem, and we just carried on meeting afterwards because of the response to the poem. I started to think that these meetings might be a way of drawing creatively on mental illness. Do you, do you think, I mean, one of the things that I want to talk about with you is the, the power of poetry to intervene in, in public life, in private life. What do you think about I mean, this particular instance of it and, and, and the, relation, the relationship between poetry and, and the mentally ill? Well, in this, um, with Sarah's case and the Mental Fight Club, um, I, I sort of have an attitude of, I'm, I'm humbled by it. Um, I, I'm so humbled by it that I just slightly catatonic. I just I'm very moved um, by the fact that um, she's found great strength um, in, in this poem. I take it to be her strength. I take it to be, uh, if, if I'm really honest, I say that in a way the reader creates the poem. So it's her strength and her vision. It's what she's seen. It's the possibility she's seen in the power of poetry to, to do this for her and for other people. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's her poetry, it's the poetry of her spirit it, that, 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 that's at work here. Um, and I think poetry is powerful precisely to the degree that readers bring their poetry to poetry, if you get what I mean. You, you, uh, a war cannot read a poem, whether it's a poem by Shakespeare or Blake, and be inspired. It, it takes a living, aware consciousness. Uh, to be aware and to react to the richness and the power in poetry. So it's, a, it's poetry is nothing more than a, a celebration of the creativity of, 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 of readers, finally. Um, so to that degree, poetry is just there as a silent, invisible potential, just waiting for whatever it is that can come and unlock it and transfer that energy into its own possibilities. Is, so you, you, you're blending poetry and prose, poetry and storytelling um, in, in a very exciting way in, in, in the new book, in, in, in Tales of Freedom. What, what is different about poetry from prose? From prose? Poetry is um, silence, and um, prose is speech. Poetry is 
hearing and positive listening. Poetry is seeing and positive listening. Poetry is meditation and prose is contemplation. Poetry is spiritual and prose is psychic. Poetry is timelessness and prose is time. When you say spiritual, what do you mean by that? It infuses your work, of course. I mean, um, hinting at things that are beyond the three dimensions. Um, hinting at things that can only be glimpsed of in, in the mind, not with the eye. Um, <laughs> it's a controversial thing to be talking about in our age, uh, the, the spiritual. I think it was Saul Bellow who said, it takes courage to use the word soul in our time. Um, let's not use the word soul. Let's just use the word transcendence. Um, I feel unavoidably that we live in things, um, but we also live in transcendence. We live in beyond things. I believe that there are two parts of us, the physical and the non-physical. I believe that we're not just what, what you see. We're not just our flesh, our hands, our hair, our nose, and our skin. I believe we're also something immeasurable inside us and all around us and part of us. Um, I think this element is missing a great deal in, um, in a major aspect of contemporary life. We just totally dismiss or don't even consider the possibility of a, a higher dimension to the human spirit. We just address ourselves as emotions bones and flesh. Um, and yet, I think everybody senses in some moment or other, in some dream or other, they sense there's something more to them. And I think, I've always felt it's important to put this back into the picture and the story of humanity. Do you have, do you come from, do you draw on spiritual traditions? Yes, all sorts, um, spiritual and non-spiritual traditions. Um, and one of my favorite spiritual traditions is one that um, emphasizes the stillness and the silence of things, which is Taoism. Um, I'm very eclectic in the spiritual term um, because I believe that all traditions, whether it's the Western spiritual traditions or the Eastern or the Islamic, that all traditions are intrigued by the higher dimensions of all. Everyone's got a garden that's leading to the infinite. All cultures have that garden. And how, how have you gone about expressing these more material, more emotional, um, spiritual aspects to you? Carefully. <laughs> I think the problem isn't the form that one writes in. I think the problem, if we're going to call it a problem, is um, the form that is doing the reading, the form in our minds. 
um, because we're so predominantly um, eyeballs and senses, we um, can only react to and relate to things that have got to do with eyeballs and senses. Um, and so those other things can only be hinted at through resonance. Um, one has to work with the skepticism of the human mind. One has to work with it, not against it. Um, why don't I read a bit? Mm. Illustrate. I'll read, um, I'll read something from a new book called The Clock. Very, uh, very quickly, I have to explain that um, the, the, new, the new book is uh, called Tales of Freedom. It's composed of um, a novella, uh, which is part poetry and part prose, and many other pieces, which is an amalgam of the, the story, the short story, and the haiku form. And I, I call it the stoku. I, <laughs> I couldn't think of a better word. If, 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 if you can, please let, let me know. Um, and this one's called The Clock. It's the first time I'm reading it, or anything from this book, by the way, so you're, this is a kind of christening. It took place in the Bois de Boulogne on a somber, moonlit night. We stood in a clearing among the chestnut trees. We were all in 18th century costume. The moment arrived. The duelists stood opposite one another with their pistols primed. Then the most unlikely thing happened. The man whose second I was, whom I partly knew, suddenly cried out. He pointed at something in the midriff of his enemy. We looked to see what troubled him. We saw a large, round, shining clock about the enemy's waist. He wore it like the buckle of a belt. The numbers were black against the luminous dial. My acquaintance was mesmerized by the clock. He was transfixed by it. He kept pointing. Then he began gibbering. The clock had somehow poisoned his mind. I said, for God's sake, old chap, it's only a clock. Look at it, he whispered. It's fiendish. Take your mind off it, I said. That's impossible. It's an abomination. His enemy stood impassively with his second. They gazed at us. My acquaintance fell apart before my eyes. He was utterly unable to rid his mind of the clock. I hadn't wanted the damned duel anyway. I had no idea what its cause had been and was never told. It remained a secret between the two enemies. I'd got roped into it by honor, false friendship, and the favors I owed. Damn the favors one owes. They lead one into other people's hell. There was nothing anyone could do. My acquaintance had succumbed to an appalling paralysis. His enemy had been patient. Night darkened, and then dawn slowly appeared. His enemy had waited many hours for my acquaintance to recover. He waited silently, like a monument, a stone statue of some disdainful Roman god. My acquaintance, however, became less than human with the agonizing passing of time. Shivering, muttering about the infernal nature of the clock, my acquaintance had a mental breakdown as dawn broke. Eventually, we had to carry him from the middle of the clearing to the waiting coach. It was understood that there would be only one coach, the loser being presumed to have been killed. We had to take the coach. The enemy was magnanimous. He was silent. He was as implacable as a marble figure on a plinth at night in a strange city. 
he and his allies simply stood there in the gathering dawn with the luminous clock brilliant about his solar plexus. My acquaintance never recovered. We took him to a hospital. Then his hallucinations began. Then his madness. I visited him often. Whenever he saw me, he asked about the clock. I was evasive in my answers. Then I stopped going to see him. He was infecting me with his instability. It doesn't take much, does it, to unhinge a man, especially if, in a clearing, at night, under a moonlit sky, a mind cannot unfix itself from a symbol. Now, I go through life not fixing my mind on anything or anyone. There's a sort of freedom in this. Thank you very much. I think, shall we bring in the audience at this point? Oh, absolutely. We all, they, they should work a bit more, but they, I really want to bring you in. They should work as, as much as, as possible. They should work as much as we're working. Yeah. Yeah. Hard work. Anybody, any questions and contributions? What a big question. I need a stiff whiskey to answer that question. <laughs> um, only, I'm influenced only to the degree that um, um, of the, the source of, of my writing, where it comes from, or what it comes from. Um, and I think maybe, I think maybe finally the source is, is some unavoidable concern that I have about, about, about us, about our being here. Um, it's, I, I, don't know why, I don't know why people write, um, but there's, there's, there's something about our being here, here, alive, now, that concerns me um, on, on, all its, on all its levels. You, you may use a small word like love if you want. You may use another slightly bigger word like justice. Um, but I think it comes from that, finally. So when you say what you say, I'm very, very moved. And at the same time, I, I, I feel like um, I shouldn't be hearing it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Because um, one wants to do what one does uh, as, as purely as possible. Um, I'm, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So thank you very much. And give my, give my love to the whole community. <laughs> you have a follow-up question, please. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I, I want to interrogate you a little bit on that because um, <laughs> it, 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 um, I mean, I've got an ego and when I tend to hear things that have been positive about what I've put out there, it's always a pleasure to hear. And I know and I've experienced that you're a very generous man in that you 
there's some important observations. Um, well, I mean, think, think of the opposite. Think of the opposite of what you're saying, because I'll be on to you guys like a, like a, like a rash. <laughs> 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 uh, exactly. I'll be a, I mean, um, a profound irritation. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you want that. Um, and I think, and I think, and I think also, um, there's something actors do that, that fascinates me um, when they're preparing for a performance in their rehearsal. They, is anybody here an actor? I'll come to, are you an actor? Oh my goodness, we'll come to you in a minute. Um, and and they, just, they just have this brief moment with, 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 with people around and they get them to boo. Boo! Right? And then after that they get them to clap, to applaud, to applaud. Um, and the whole point, of course, is to, to learn to perform purely, regardless of the boos or the applauses. There's a gentleman at the back. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. <laughs> um, um, personal, but per personal. The public is implied in my personal, in the sense that I, I, I'm just a little bit crazy, but I, I actually slightly believe in in the um, in the novalis dictum that you know um, I am you. Um, it's, it's a German romantic, died at the age of 30, and wrote all these incredible epigrams. And one of them that I hold very dearly is, I am you. So that's implied in the personal for me. Could I bring in another romantic to help us with this? Um, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Uh, it, it, I'll, I'll, I'll read you a little stave from his essay on defense of poetry, which he wrote in 1819 at a time when there was a very oppressive government in place in Britain and a great deal of, um, great deal of, of, of uh, what became violent opposition to that government. He says, for the literature of England, an energetic development of which has ever preceded or accompanied a great and free development of the national will, has arisen, as it were, from a new birth. In spite of the low-thoughted envy which would undervalue contemporary merit, our own will be a memorable age in intellectual achievements and we live among such philosophers and poets as surpass beyond comparison any who have appeared since the last national struggle for civil and religious liberty. I presume he's talking about the Civil War there, which threw off our greatest uh, British poet, apart from Shakespeare, John Milton. Um, the most unfailing herald, companion, and follower of the awakening of a great people to work a beneficial change in opinion or institution is poetry. At such periods, there's an accumulation of the power of communicating and receiving intense and impassioned conceptions respecting man and nature. The person in whom this power resides may often, as far as regards many portions of their nature, have little apparent correspondence with that spirit of good of which they are the ministers. But even whilst they deny and abjure, they are yet compelled to serve that power which is seated on the throne of their own soul. It is impossible to read the compositions of the most celebrated writers of the present day without being startled with the electric life which burns within their words. They measure the circumference and sound the depths of human nature with a comprehensive and all-penetrating spirit, and they are themselves perhaps the most sincerely astonished at its manifestations, for it is less their spirit than the spirit of the age. Poets are the hierophants of an unapprehended inspiration, the mirrors of the gigantic shadows which futurity casts upon the present, the words which express what they understand not, the trumpets which sing to battle and feel not what they inspire, the influence which is moved not but moves. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Ben, you wrote the acknowledged legislators of the world take the world as given. They dislike mysteries, for mysteries cannot be coded or legislated, and wonder cannot be made into law. And so these legislators 
police the accepted frontiers of things. You are, even in your otherworldly moments, a worldly poet, um, a poet of this world, um, a poet committed to intervening uh, in this world. What is your relation to, what do you think of a passage like that? What is your relation to the spirit of the age? How does it move you? How do you influence it? Um, what an exalted passage. Um, very powerful passage. What I think the artist, the, the, the poet, um, has to feel uh, as much as possible themselves carried by the spirit of the age. But what a dangerous thing to say. Um, because how do you know that you're carried by the spirit of the age and not the spirit of your ego? Um, or the spirit of your publishers? Um, um, or worse than that, the, the spirit of your agents? Um, and what is the spirit of what is the spirit of the age? Um, do we look for the spirit of the age in, in newspapers, um, in, in the opinion pages, the comment pages of newspapers, um, television screens? Do we look for the spirit of the age um, in, in the House of Parliament in the debates of the day? What, what is and where is the spirit of the age? Is it the the, the mutterings of, of of blind children in, in Barbados? I did it because of the bees. Or um, or of the mad in Mauritius? Um, is it something that one... <laughs> Shall I read? Please. Okay, what shall I read from? Oh. I'm asking the audience. Shall I read from... Shall I read about change, or shall I read about chaos? Or should I read about Picasso? Choose. See your choices. Change the change one. The change one is really good. Change. Chaos. Change. It depends on what I find first. Okay. Why are we about change? Actually, I read, I'll do all three very quickly. <laughs> we'll start with Picasso. This is called Lessons from a Master, Extracts, to Pablo Picasso. Be influenced by new materials. Multiply your language. Let the material speak. Impose a form or follow the flow. Transcend morality. Don't be your censor. There is no destiny or destination in art. Be open to conducive environments. Always give the child something to do. Form follows vision. Humor is the relaxation of the anxious intelligence. To have no purpose in art can be conducive to creativity. To refresh is as important as to instruct. Keep your artistic libido alive. Follow the sunlight of your creativity. Art is joy in the river, time rewarded. That's just extracts. Should we do change, or should we take some more questions? I, wanna, I, 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 well, I feel I haven't heard very much from people. We, we, we how are we doing for time? We have, we, we have only well, seven minutes left. Oh, so. plenty of time, plenty of time. <laughs> we, can, we can do a we lot can. in seven minutes. 
How about we take another question now and then, yeah. and then, and then maybe the final we can end with change? Okay. And then we'll end with change. Yeah. Okay. One final. Two short questions. Please. You mustn't take my distinction too rigorously. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was given in the, in the moment, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and give a very quick answer. Well, contemplation is a, a clear, logical thought. Um, you follow a thought clearly and rigorously in prose. What strikes you about beautiful prose, the best prose, is the clarity of its movements. Yeah? Um, it's not mindless. It's not driven by association of thoughts. You don't start, a great passage doesn't start with a, a frog and then end by talking about the color green and then end by talking about a skyscraper in, 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 in Germany that is green. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? There's a it follows a clear, follows a river of thought very clearly and rigorously. That's contemplation. Meditation is about emptiness. The space is empty for things to come into. So poetry at its best should clear your mind, actually, rather than fill it. Uh, is there somebody? <laughs> there's uh, there's oh somebody okay. there and somebody here. Okay, should we, two, should we two take quick. them both? We'll yeah. take them both. Yeah. Okay. You first, please. change was happening all along, really, um, and incidents at the shrine was part of that change. And if there's one, one component of many that I draw your attention to, it's the fact that I became profoundly, deeply dissatisfied with the description of the world that I found in realism. I just simply didn't get the world as described by realism. It, it told me about things, but it didn't tell me about the spaces between things, for example. Um, it told me about thought, but it didn't tell me about, the, about, about dreams, about the things that, the, the gaps between thought. Um, it told me about history, but it didn't tell me about the place of myth in history that is history too. Um, and so I needed a new style, I needed a new tone of voice in which to catch, it, catch this new reality. And I went through a long period of literally taking my writing apart. I had to go back to the beginning of language, like a kid, and learn the language from scratch. But behind that, I think, I, I'd say it was a great anguish and a great, great personal suffering. I'm going to have to be bad cop here and be strict because we have to clear the room in time. So, but then we'll be around afterwards. And you, you, you do have a question, right? Okay. Can you very quickly? Yes, go on. In less than my goodness, in less uh, than two minutes. Um, cultural influences. Um, just about every aspect of culture is capable of striking the mind awake. 
everything everywhere. Um, do we have time for a quick reading, or should we just quick. quit the room quickly? Um, if, if, if you could read change, I think that would okay. be, I think we just have enough time for we that, have and just then Laura will sign us off. But you see, the thing is, you're sort of slightly assuming that you know what the length of change is. Uh, oh, no, I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's dancing with change. Maybe it's something else. Um, maybe it's something else. It is something else. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, it's the same something else. Okay. Dancing with change. This was uh, written in response to something that um, a professor said um, at Trinity College, Cambridge. So, quotation mark. Change is good, but no change is better. End of quotation mark. It rang through the great hall as it has resounded silently through the ages. It rang past the faces of stern masters and poets and lords of learning asleep in their hidden academies. Change is good. Newton unveiled the unchanging laws and freed us into new sight. This inheritance has become one under eras of division and strife. Havens and deep places have to be protected from the raging winds and the glowing deserts. The corridors have widened. Fields have given way to new trees and new cries of ecstasy. Dreaming spires no longer dream the same things. Monoliths hold books now, and philosophies sprung from harsh evolutions with a thought. Freedom has given birth to unfreedom. Reason has triumphed over the unbounded creative spirit. The air is drier where no change is better. Old ways kept old, protected from the devils of the gate, turn the bones white and stiffen the mind's luminous dance into new ages and happier flights. Change is a god that Heraclitus saw in the ancient river. And as we keep things the same, the river works beneath us. The God works his gentle and sad ironies on our eyes, hidden from the encroaching devils at the gate. The river runs. The fields sprout strange new mushrooms. Libraries yield new books in the changed margins of the old. And reason, trapped in philosophies held in iron, turns on itself like a caged tiger and prowls the diminished boundaries of a shrinking world. Shrinking because of the horror of the devils at the gate. Song is sweet. Music prays to change. Poets pray to the goddess of surprise. And mathematicians would be unmoored in those realms where no change is a wild river of factors. Love is seduced by change, itself unchanging. Time, serene, remains indifferent to our iron will, our willed philosophies. The world grows or shrinks of its own necessity its own vision. The river makes all things dance to a music they never understood at the time. And the giants who built walls meant to be proof against time and the desert ravages found in their sleep that the walls have become change, had moved, had dissolved, had sprouted the feared things, or worse, that the feared things had seeped in on the foot or through the air, had changed the frontiers of their rigid dialogue. Walls invite invasion. Walls end up trapping within the demons meant to be kept out, for the demons merely turn into the giants, growing them like a silent cancer. Oasis attracts the eyes of the hungry, protected places 
illuminated by fame, attract the rage of the unlucky, the unfortunate, the dispossessed, and all those who are shut out in the outer darknesses of our age. All around, leonids, planets, stars are whirling. The cosmos shrinks and grows, dreams and flows under the immutable spell of change. All around, lives collapse, empires quietly fall in and cave in from natural exhaustion. Dynasties give up the ghost of ambition. Towers rage with the unmeasured cadences of festering hunger. Continents drift apart. Peoples no longer recognize one another. And wars eat up fathers and frail sisters. And houses fall on one another. And roads break out into unhallowed speech. It is natural to want calm places where stillness dwells where cool waters flow, where concerts radiate music and grace, where the mind contemplates crystals, pure forms, glowing legends, complex melodies, and books that keep their hidden thoughts in the silence of their musty pages. It is natural to want serenity and flowering gardens of lovely symmetry. And Virgil's spreading beaches and the lost happy times of the wise ones who were wise in the knowledge that the mind can comprehend all. But the river flows, and so must we. Change is the happy God that Heraclitus saw in the Golden River. Spread illumination through this darkening world. Spread illumination through this darkening world. No change is good, but dancing gracefully with change is better.